come the difficulties of rebuilding the temple with opposition. They are finally at what you and I would call a high point, right? They've got things going. They want the way they should go. And if you're probably familiar with your own walk with the Lord, it seems like when we experience a, a great move of God or it seems like when we really are growing in our faith, that the next thing that happens is usually temptation, right? Or usually there is something that happens in our life that causes a great struggle. And so from the end of chapter 8 until the beginning of chapter 9, it's about a four and a half month period. And so Ezra and, and all this is going on, they're rebuilding the temple, they, they, they're celebrating, you remember there in the end of chapter 8, uh, you know, they were worshiping God, they were, they were celebrating um, God had provided a way for them to get there. Just an amazing, amazing time. And right in the beginning of chapter 9, we see that the children of Israel have went back to the very same thing that caused them to be carried off into captivity. Now you say, Jake, that's not possible. They just spent decades in slavery and captivity. They have been given, as you see there in chapter 8, they had been given a letter by the king to rebuild. They had been given gold. They had been given uh, offerings. They had been given everything they needed and then some. You would think there's no way that they're going to turn their back on God and run back to the things that, that got them in the same troubles they are in. But if you're honest tonight in your walk with the Lord, as I have to be, I run back to the same things over and over again. And I struggle with the things that I think, Lord, I've, I've finally overcome this. God, you've finally given me the victory. But yet, I turn around and find myself with the same struggles. I think sometimes those could be anything from fear. They can be doubt. Uh, they can be uh, unforgiveness. It, it looks different for each and every one of us. We each have areas in our life that we are more uh, prone to be led into temptation than others. Right? For some ends, it might be... Uh, it might be a pride issue. That might be the thing that you struggle with. Maybe tonight it's an issue of, of unforgiveness. Maybe it's a, a problem of feeling like you have value because of the way you were raised or something like that. But yet tonight, all of us, if we know the Lord as our personal Savior, have been set free. We've been forgiven. We, we have the joy of our salvation. And so the logical thing would be, I'm just moving on and moving up, right? But yet, Paul said, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do want to do, those I, I don't. And so the struggle is real. And so when we come to chapter 9, this is a very difficult chapter. And I told you last week that if you didn't want to be upset, stay home. And apparently some of you did. Not you, but those other people. Um, because I'm going to be honest with you, this passage of Scripture was used in many churches to talk about the sin of interracial marriage. And so in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you would have went to churches in the South and they would have said, well, you cannot have interracial marriage because of this chapter in the book of Ezra. Uh, this is not talking about racial marriage here. And um, I'm not going to get into what your feelings are on that because that is a loaded canon and we're not going to touch it. And I don't want to slap somebody in public, and I might, all right? But this is an issue of faith. And Jesus talked about that in the New Testament, right? Jewish circumcision is not just about your race, is it? We are adopted into the family of God, um, not by our birth, right? But we are Gentiles. And so we start here in, in verse 1 of chapter 9, and like I said, it's a, it is a really tough chapter. Uh, if you want to read it on down with me, 
uh, in the end of chapter 10, uh, it is so difficult because literally it says in verse 44, all these had taken pagan wives and some of them had wives by whom they had children. And what you know is that he had said, you've got to leave them. You have got to divorce these wives. And yet we know the Bible says that God hates divorce. And so it is a, I, I just going to be honest with you, it is a chapter that is very challenging, very difficult. And so I will do my best. And if you don't like it, you can always find someone else. And uh, so starting in verse 1, it says, when these things were done, most likely Ezra had been going to different areas telling them, the Jewish people are here. We've rebuilt the temple. We've got, we've got instructions from the king. Just because naturally didn't have Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, text messages. You couldn't just do something and a whole community hear about it. All right. You had to travel. You had to announce it, etc. When these things were done, and so most likely he had been out doing this, he comes back. And as most good leaders, the moment that you come back from a spiritual high, someone sideswipes you with something difficult. When these things were done, the leaders, or your Bible might say the princes, came to me saying, the people of Israel, there are three groups, three groups of people, don't miss this, and the priest and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with respect to the abomination of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. And so this is the issue that he brings. He says the priest, the people, and the Levites have all married pagans. They've married people who worship different gods. They worship people who don't honor God. And it's interesting that the list that is given here, the Canaanites, the Hittites, at this point in history, most of those tribes had been absorbed into um, Samaritans and to other groups of people. And so there would not have been, this is the land of the Canaanites anymore. This was the land of the Hittites anymore. But yet he makes a reference to this list. And there's a reason he makes a reference to this list. Do you remember back in the Old Testament, in the very beginning, in the first five books, when they are taking the land in, in different areas, he tells them that they are to drive out a group of people? This list is almost synonymous. And so he's taking them back to, this is not a racial issue, it is a spiritual issue. These are the same pagans that I told you, do not marry. Do not blend your worship with them. And if you do not, the land will be yours, if you remember, right? If you, if you drive them out of the land and you inherit the land, you'll have houses that you did not build and, and fields that you did not plant and, and vineyards that you did not. Remember, the, remember those promises. But he says, if you don't, right, they will what? They'll corrupt you. And so literally, he is saying to, to Ezra, we're back to doing the exact same thing. The very same thing that God punished us for. The very same thing that God took us into captivity. The people have done. But do you notice something there? It wasn't just about the people. At the end of verse 2 it says, 
Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Once again, we've been looking at spiritual leadership and we've been looking at those things about how those who have been given a position of leadership will be held to a stricter judgment, right? Their sin has a danger to hurt more people. And so he is saying that it's not just the people, it's the people who should have known better. And they have been doing this very same thing. And I think this is important tonight because we still live by this principle. The Bible tells us not to be what? Unequally yoked. And I personally, now I know pastors that will, I'm not going to speak to their integrity, but I will not marry a couple where one is saved and one is not. I have seen lots of couples do that and then God save the unbelieving spouse. And uh, I've told this story every time I do premarital counseling. There's a family here at church whose the grandma and grandpa got married and grandpa wasn't saved. He got saved. They had three daughters who all married lost men. All three of those men were saved. And so can God work in that situation? Absolutely. But tonight I want you to know that that's not God's intent. God intends for us as business owners to go into business with people who hold the same values that we do. As, as, uh, as a family, this is this idea. And you say, Jake, I don't understand the difference. Well, that is because our faith has been so watered down that you, you almost can't tell a difference. But is, is the church's view of marriage and the world's view of marriage the same? Is, no. Is the world's view of how to manage money and the church is the same? Is how to raise your children the same in the church or in the world? Are principles of integrity the same in the church or in the world? No, there is no way in which the Christian faith and the things of this world line up. But yet we have tried our very best to make them work together. And they don't, do they? The Bible literally teaches us that over and over again. And so what we see here is, is marriage that is leading the people astray. And it is causing the nation to begin to live in sin again. And so that is the accusation that is made. And I think that's important tonight because there is an accusation to be made. And so thoughts about this, uh, questions before we, we move in to the response to this. Absolutely. L- luckily for my wife, I was good looking and saved. And so yeah, that was just a joke. Just a joke. Yeah. Yeah. But it's very true. And so tonight, but I don't want us to be so harsh on people to think, well, they married an unbeliever, their life is over. Because we can be very judgmental in the church as well. Um, but yet, when we are counseling young people, uh, and we're, and I, I'm doing premarital counseling right now for a couple, and I just actually finished up their premarital counseling, and one of the requirements is you have to go talk to someone that has been saved and married a long time. And so, uh, the couple that I'm counseling went and talked to Larry and Betty. Not saying they're old, or they've, but they've been married a long time. And, uh, and so why? Because you need to hear what it takes to be married and what it's really like. And I've only been married about uh, 13 years this summer. And so we've experienced our up and down, but nothing like raising children and, 
and watching your kids get married and, and grant. So it's just a lot to talk about as a parent. And so I just want you to really hear that tonight, that we see the danger of compromise. But look what it says here in verse 3. This is from Ezra. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair on my head and beard and sat down astonished. You see, there's a lot of responses to sin that we can have. The first is we can ignore it. It doesn't affect me. I didn't, I didn't intermarry in this situation, so it's not my problem. We can, we can make excuses for it. That, well, you know what? Uh, she was really pretty. And so, you know, or, you know, or her family had lots of land, or they had lots of inheritance. But that's not what Ezra does. And friends, I want you to see this tonight, because if you and I really want to see God at work in our life, in our marriage, in our church, this has to be our response. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe. It is a sign of mourning. I don't know if you remember this or not, but we're actually looking at the very same thing in the book of 2 Samuel. David experiences the same thing. And so when Sunday morning's talking about something and Wednesday night's talking about something, it's probably very important for us to hear that loss or sin should cause us to respond. And we see this here that he begins an attitude of humility. Right? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Now we know that is an Old Testament promise to the Jewish people, but I believe it is applicable to all of God's children. And so we see here is he begins to enter into a sense of humility. Now this is interesting and plucked out some of his head of my head and beard, and that's not why I'm losing my head. Hair, I don't sit around and pluck it out because I, I mourn over you. But in Jewish culture, it was very common to shave your head in a time of brokenness. But if you were to pluck it out, it was one of the most um, mournful or debased things you could do. It was a sign that you cannot get any lower than you are now. Uh, if you remember, there was another person whose beard was pulled out in a time of great humility. But it wasn't done to himself. He had it done to him. That would be Jesus, right? And so for the person doing it to someone else, it was the epitome of shame, right? Because I don't know if you've ever tried to pull your beard out, but I got enough little kids in my house to know my hair and my beard has been pulled on a regular basis. And I am not pulling it out, okay? But yet that's what he did. It wasn't self-mutilation. It was the most humble and humility that he could do. Because if you're familiar with the Old Testament, how you kept your beard and how you cut your hair was very important. It was a very important thing. And so it is just a sign of humility. And tonight, unless we as God's people get serious about repenting of our sin, I'm not talking about everybody else's sin, but our sin. Why was Ezra doing this for other people's sin? Because he was their leader. He, he was their spiritual leader. He was the one who was leading them. And so he was broken for them. And I believe that is a heart of a spiritual leader, that there should be a heart for God's people. So I know a lot of pastors that, that they don't do their own visits anymore. Their churches get big and they lock themselves in their offices. And, but I just refuse to do that because I believe it is important for a shepherd to spend time with the sheep. I wish I could spend the same amount of time with you all that I used to could, 
but it's no longer possible. Uh, before church tonight, I had a 5 o'clock meeting, a 5 o'clock bab- bab- uh, uh, baptism counseling. After church tonight, I have a, a meeting and another baptism counseling, and I'm skipping the meetings both times. Amen? <laughs> But that's just the way it is. Life is busy. The church has grown. And so it's, things have changed. But what we see here is Ezra cared about God and he cared about them. And tonight, whether you're a parent, whether you're a spouse, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you're a deacon, whether you are a nursery worker, you better love the people that God brings into your care or into your ministry. Their life should matter. I... Uh, like I said, I was doing some baptism counseling and, uh, and that was one of the comments was, uh, I, I don't always like to hear what you have to say, but I always know that I need to hear what you have to say. And, uh, and that's truly the goal, right? I, I wish I could stand up there every Sunday and say, you are all so wonderful. You are God's gift to McLeansboro, and I know you don't struggle with sin, and I, I know that your marriages have never had hard times, and, and you're just wonderful. You're just awesome. You are the cream of the A+. Plus. And that's how the sermon ended. But it wouldn't be faithful. Why? Because each of us need to be reminded that we're sinners, that we need to repent, that we all have blind spots in our life. And so he begins to mourn this sin because he does not want God to judge them again. I cannot imagine what it would like to be like to watch your entire nation be torn to the ground. I cannot imagine what it would like for this church to drive up one night and it be on fire and burn to the ground. I I can't imagine that. I just can't imagine what that would be like. But to watch the house of God in the Old Testament, which where the presence of God was, be destroyed because of your sin, I, I can't imagine that. And then, once again, you're heading down the same path again. Ezra sees the danger. And look what it says in verse 4, and then we'll take a break. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Now I want to show you the difference between Ezra's situation and Jeremiah's. Right, when Jeremiah was preaching repentance, and when Jeremiah was letting God use him to do some crazy uh, examples, the people what? They rejected him, didn't they? They wanted nothing to do with him. If you remember, they threw Jeremiah into a, a abandoned well to die, knowing that he probably wouldn't die, but they couldn't kill him because of the people. They locked him up in stocks. Uh, they accused him of being a traitor. All because why? He told them, you have sinned against God. You have left your first love. You have intermingled in worship. And here's Ezra in the very same situation, but what? God's people do something different. They come to Him. They want to know what is the issue, what's going on, why this is happening, and what they need to do. And I want to say this tonight because you and I are not responsible for results. I know men who pastor small churches, who preach wonderful sermons, who love their people, who visit their people, and those churches are cold and dead and are unresponsive. And some people would say, well, that pastor is not successful, but yet your church, which is going to baptize two people tonight and five people on Sunday, you are successful. 
But results do not define success. If you're a Sunday school teacher and you're saying, Jake, our, our class isn't growing as much as I'd like for it to, or, or that class is growing more than ours, you know, they must be successful and I must be a failure. No, what we see here is Jeremiah was faithful and the people didn't listen. Ezra was faithful and the people did. Results belong to God. God is the increaser. God is the giver. And so tonight I really want you to think about that in your own walk. Because whether you're a parent, there are probably days when you put your head on the pillow and you think, boy, I'm a failure. <laughs> when you've got as many kids as I do, our goal is just keep them alive at this point. They're alive. <laughs> but yet, we look here and we see that Ezra has done what God told him to do. And so, have you ever been guilty of being result-driven instead of honoring God-driven? Yeah, people don't usually come up and say, hey, I heard you lost 22 families. Way to knock it out of the park. Doing a great job out there, aren't you? Oh, yeah, thank you. They don't say that, do they? No, how, how many people are you running now? That's the question I get asked every time. How, how many people you got going out there? Well, half of them skip about every week, so I don't know what to tell you. It's just lighthearting, but that's what we view success. The Southern Baptist Convention came out with their numbers uh, for baptisms last year. And let's be honest, there was COVID and everything else. But baptisms were down 47%. Um, half. And the alarm is, well, well, it's it's all in shambles. There's nothing to do. And, and then other people said, well, it's all COVID and it's not nothing to worry about. And what I say is I see a lot of sin in the Southern Baptist Convention that's not being dealt with whether it's pushing uh, uh, critical race theory, uh, whether it is a drift to liberalism and embracing things like uh, uh, just a lot of different things. And so what I say is we probably just need to be repenting, seeking the Lord's face and making sure that our churches are being who God wants us to be and salvations and baptisms will work themselves out. I believe that. I believe that's the case here. We've seen periods of time where we've baptized tons of people and then we've went through periods where we've not baptized anybody for months, right? I always remember the first person I ever baptized. I don't remember everyone that I've always baptized, but the first person I ever baptized was Brandon Henderson. It's the first person I ever baptized. Now, I've baptized hundreds since then. Not all of them are still in church. And so it's easy sometimes as a pastor to think, well, maybe if we would have done this different, or maybe we would have done that different, or did we wait long enough? Did we baptize them too quick? But those are the Lord's results. And all we can do is be obedient. And so I want to just give you two things I really want to encourage you tonight to do. If you really want God to work and move in your life, the first one is this. Have a daily time of repentance. A daily time where you get along with God and His Word and prayer and say, Lord, show me the things in my life that shouldn't be here. God, forgive me of whatever it is, right? That's first. And the second is to pray for other people. Pray for your spouse, to pray for your children, to pay for pray for relationships, to pray for your church. Because those two things are something that God wants of His people and trust that He will provide the results. Those two things every day. Now, I don't, that might be too much for you or that might seem like it's not enough or maybe you're already doing that. But those are two ways where you can be obedient to God and not worry about the results. 
Thoughts? Yeah, I listen to my sermons and I think, boy, I wish they weren't on the internet. <laughs> uh, so I called Lucas this week and said, Lucas, do you care to edit one line out of my sermon from Sunday night? And uh, he did. So uh, just because sometimes you say things and you realize that probably wasn't the best thing to say. If you were here Sunday night, it was the puking comment. So uh, just probably best not to say. I apologize to you all, but that's not on the video. So, uh, but that's just the way it is. And so, but yes, it's not about, I mean, I, I watched four or five hours today of Alistair Begg, and he is, he is amazing. And to compare myself to him is, is clearly a, can be a very issue, a big issue, but absolutely. I, uh, I think every pastor, when they start doing ministry, they say things like, you know what? Everybody that joins the church is going to sign the church covenant. And, and everybody that joins the church is going to be in Sunday school. And I want to make sure that everybody that joins the church and I'm the pastor is going to come on Sunday night. And then about a year into it, you realize, yeah, I'm not going to get to accomplish any of those things. Because why? It, it, it's, we're living in such a difficult time and difficult age that it's so easy just to one, not only compromise, but just give up. Right? Just, it's not worth the fight. It's not worth the argument. It's not worth the difficulty. And, and I think a lot of times that's our biggest problem is it's not that we, that we compromise and embrace sin. We just give up. It's not, it's not worth it anymore. And so when we see in verse five though is, at the evening sacrifice I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And so if you know anything about the Jewish culture, the Jewish culture prayed more standing uh, with their hands up and a, a posture like this. Uh, that's why Jesus and Paul talked about uh, when you pray. Uh, Paul talked about lifting up hands in, in 1 Timothy um, and all of those things. And what Ezra does is he falls on his face um, and it's a sign of humility. Uh, there's another person in the New Testament who, when he was in a great time of prayer, uh, did the same thing, uh, and it was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus did not come in a spirit of, of prayer like this, but yet he, he put himself down in a position of humility. And so what we see here is, is that this is not about the position of the prayer. It's about the heart behind the prayer. It's the humility that Ezra had. And he said in verse 6, And I said, O oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, Jesus told a parable about the person who uh, uh, was praying and couldn't look up and just beat their chest because they were a, a sinner. It goes on and says, Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as is this day. And now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in this holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us. But God did not forsake us in our bondage. But He extended mercy to us in the sight of the king of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And so his prayer is just, God, you've been gracious to us. He admits his sin. 
He admits their sin. He, he calls upon the goodness and mercifulness of God. He talks about the blessings of God. And friends, today that should be our desire. We should have this relationship with God that we know we are sinners. That we're thankful for His blessings. We're thankful for His goodness. We, we know that He's loved us and cared for us and, and been there for us. And, and I think it's amazing here when it talks there like in verse 8, for now and now for a little while, Grace has been shown from the Lord our God. It goes on down there and says, For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us. He's just talking about that even though they were not faithful, God was. And even though they failed God, God did not fail them. And it's just a beautiful picture of the love that God has for His people. I'm thankful that that God puts us in the palm of His hand, as the writer of Romans says, and, and what can separate us from His love. You know, it gives a list of things. I'm thankful that, as I quoted uh, from Sunday morning, right, that He knew us uh, and died for us while we were yet sinners. And so we see here that He is admitting that everything good in them is who? Is God. And so it's just a beautiful picture of humility and what God has done. It should be a reminder for us as saved people that there is no reason for us to boast. There is nothing good in us. Uh, we get saved and then we live for the Lord a little while and then we begin to think a little higher of ourselves than we probably should. Uh, and really the only thing good in us is the grace and mercy of God. And, and so thoughts about that before we um, quickly try to... We're not going to get through both chapters tonight like I wanted to, but that's okay. All right, so don't miss this because he admits it, but now look what happens in verse 10. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? Right? What's our response to the goodness of God? What's our response to the blessing of God? Right? If you're reading this for the first time, you're probably thinking, you're going to be thankful, right? You're going to be appreciative. You're going to be just overflowing and, and blessing and compassion. But it says, For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of peoples of the land, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now therefore, do not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take daughters to their sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land. Now I want to stop there. Because I want you to see that it's not a race issue. It literally says there that the land is full of what? Not black people, not brown people, not yellow people, but of wicked people. Wicked people. That you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. God says this is the promise. And I think of this as the same thing that God through Samuel told Saul. Do you remember after Saul had messed up and David told him, if you would have just obeyed God, he would have established your kingdom forever. But he said, you didn't. You disobeyed. And it says in verse 13, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. He says, God, you've not given us what we deserve. You've been merciful and have given us such deliverance of this, should we again break your commandments 
and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations. Would you... It doesn't say these people who are abominations. It says these people who are committing these abominations. I don't want to miss this. Would you not be angry with, with us until you have consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, You are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before You in our guilt, though no one can stand before You because of this. So he just admits, God, we have... Here we are. And so I want to say this tonight as I close. You can never be right with God until you admit that you are a sinner. I've seen people try to come to God saying, you know what, I've evolved into being a Christian. I have, uh, I've always been a Christian. Uh, I've not done a lot of bad things. I think I'm, I'm okay. I, I'd like to add to my religion. But it's not that way. You have to admit to God that you are a sinner. Now, I don't watch the news. I don't get on Facebook other than what people send me, which is a lot. But uh, uh, I was reading a quick article today on the uh, itch situation in England with Prince Andrew and uh, Jeffrey Epstein and all that mess. And I got lots of thoughts on that, but I'm not going to say it. But from a standpoint of uh, he admitted that this woman had been abused, but yet he did not admit that he had been a part of it. And I don't know if he's guilty or innocent. That's between him and the Lord. But every paper in England had a big headline on it, right, about how this and his last act and, and all of these things. And But yet, just the, just the admission itself in the statement was not, I have done anything wrong. Okay? So maybe he didn't. That's That's not... For me to say, I'm not involved, I'm here. But what I can tell you is that's how most of us approach God. Lord, you know, I, I know I shouldn't have, I know I shouldn't have cussed out that person that cut me off in traffic. Uh, Lord, I know I, I shouldn't struggle with this fear. Or God, I know I shouldn't have this pride, but, but everybody's a sinner, right? Don't judge. Very, yeah, very much so. But yet that's not how you can approach God. That's why the church, and I say this a lot in my Sunday school class, and I've said it a lot back here, we ought to be the first place where you and I could admit that we made a mistake. Admit that we have sinned. We don't condone it. We don't approve of it. We don't, we don't think it's okay. But this ought to be the one place where we can say, I have sinned, and I am sorry. Forgive me. To God and to who else? To each other. But it's not, is it? We come to church and we're like, oh, I don't have any sin. I don't have any struggles. You know how I know that we have that mentality? I preach a lot of sermons after talking to a whole lot of people about what's going on in their life. And it's like, we're just finished this sermon. We're going to have a time of invitation. Won't you come and let God have it? I'm good. You have literally said, I know I have a problem. I know I have a situation. I'm not saying you have to come and deal with it up front. You can deal with it where you sit. I do believe that. But how many times I can tell you, that's why I started closing my eyes during the altar call. Now, preachers aren't supposed to close their eyes. They're supposed to watch the crowd, right? I can't. I cannot. I have to close my eyes. Because I'll be looking through the crowd and I'll think, 
Why aren't you down here? And I'm not pointing to Greg. I'm just, just pointing to the door, all right? Yeah. <laughs> or you just told me about how... Yeah, time, I know. It is time. But I, I hope tonight that you and I will recognize that God wants to forgive us. God is willing to forgive us. But we must be willing to come in a spirit of humility and ask. Right? And all God's people said? Amen. Amen.